0: Please turn again to Mark 15. Mark chapter 15. Looking at verses 33 to 34. When the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Ordinarily in a communion season, the ordinary preaching schedule stops for a week, so that an appropriate text on the atonement may be expounded. But in God's good providence, our next sermon in the Gospel according to Mark is the very pinnacle of the atonement. <clears throat> my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the Mount Everest of Christ's sufferings. There's nothing higher, and nothing deeper, and nothing richer. All the revelation of the atonement is important. The physical sufferings, the theological understandings of propitiation and reconciliation, and redemption. The Old Testament types, these are all important and essential. But here's the depths. This is the heart, the heart of what Christ suffered to save his people from their sins. This means we must approach this text with fear and trembling. We need to be precise and exact with what we say. And we must hear the word with all due reverence. And we'll endeavour to do that by the grace of the living God. Here I want to focus on three things. One, the darkness. Two, the cry. Three, the faith. First of all, the darkness. Jesus Christ hangs on the cross at 9 a.m. in the morning. And from there, the charge is placed over his head. He is numbered with to thieves to violent insurrectionists and all kinds of people pass by and mock and laugh at him but then verse 33 says it is suddenly dark when the sixth hour that's 12 noon was come there was darkness over the whole land Until the ninth hour. What is this darkness? Luke chapter 23 verse 45 gives us a brief explanation. And the sun was darkened. This is no solar eclipse. It's Passover. And Passover happens on the 14th of Nisan. Which is... The full moon. And an eclipse occurs for a matter of minutes, not hours. This is no natural phenomena. This is a supernatural act of God Himself. The God who caused the sun to stand still. For a day in Joshua chapter 10. Is the God who supernaturally darkens. In Mark 15. What is the extent of the darkness. Over the whole land. From 12 noon. To 3 pm. The whole land here is the whole land of Israel. <clears throat> and for three whole hours, midday to 3 pm, it is absolutely dark. Why did God darken the land of Israel for three Hours. Darkness is the sign of God's judgment against sin. You remember, children, that when God sent Moses to deliver his people from the Egyptians, <coughs> Pharaoh would not let God's people go. What did God do? He sent ten plagues. And what was the ninth plague to show God's judgment? Darkness. Exodus chapter 10 verse 21. The Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand toward heaven and there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. And in Amos chapter 8, God's people are breaking the covenant. They're sinning. They're complaining about the Sabbath day. We want to buy and sell, why do we for 24 hours not have to buy and sell? Sadly many professing Christians are just like Israel complaining. And God comes and says, I am going to judge you and then he reveals in his temporal judgment of Israel, the eschatological judgment, that is the last final judgment of Israel, but speaks of the last days and he says there's a day coming to judge it will be dark at noonday Amos 8 9 and it shall come to pass in that day saith the Lord God I will cause the sun to go down at noon and I will darken the earth in the clear day and in Mark chapter 15 it is that day. Darkness over the land for three hours because God's judgment has come. But who is being judged? There's a subordinate and a primary. The subordinate is Israel, God's covenant people. The darkness isn't just over Calvary. It's not even just around the city of Jerusalem. It's over the whole land of Israel. Because God is judging Israel for her rejection of his son, Jesus Christ. And God is angry, he's made promises. He's prophesied, he's revealed the suffering servant, he's revealed the branch who would come, he's revealed his fellow would come to bear the sword for his people and he sends the son and his son comes to his own and the son's own reject him. And so the darkness over all the land of Israel was God saying, you are judged for rejecting my son, your Messiah, And oh, Israel, Israel, are you blind? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus. Give us a sign from heaven that you are who you say you are. A sign from heaven. A sign that cannot be denied. Here it is, Israel. Here's a sign from heaven in the full moon, in the noonday, darkness over the whole land for three straight hours. It's crystal clear. And they still will not see because the darkness of the land reveals the darkness of their soul and the blindness of their state. And this is why Christ, on the Via Dolorosa, the way of sufferings, he turns back to Israel in Luke chapter 23, 29, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, how I was willing to save you and gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And now there's a consequence. Behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps that never gave suck. This is AD 70. This is the fury of Rome descending upon Jerusalem. And it's a curse for you to have an infant child because you cannot flee as you can without a child in your arms. And they will slaughter you and destroy your temple. And this is God's righteous judgment over you. No more temple. No more sacrifice. No more priesthood. And for two thousand years, Israel has been darkened. The veil is over their eyes, Paul says. So that when the law of Moses is read, they do not understand it. But in the midst of this darkness over the land, there's light. There is light. Because Jesus also prophesied at the end of Matthew 23, he will not return to earth until Israel says, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord faith until israel as a people group will return in repentance and say jesus christ is our messiah and we look forward to his coming which means pray for jerusalem pray for the true shalom of the prince of peace jesus christ Pray that the Redeemer return and Jacob will be turned from transgression and that all Israel shall be saved. There is light. But two thousand years ago there's darkness. God is judging Israel. But that's the subordinate judgment. God's darkness of judgment has come for one man. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. That's clear from the text, 33 and 34 together. When the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice that he is forsaken. Why has the darkness of God's judgment came against Jesus Christ? we know the answers brothers and sisters we've already drawn upon them through our ordinary exposition remember in verse 17 what is jesus bearing a crown of thorns galatians 3:13 christ redeems us from the curse by becoming a curse verse 28 he was numbered with the transgressors. First Peter 2.24 He bare our sins in his own body on the tree. And so the darkness of God's judgment is coming upon Jesus because he's our substitute. He's bearing our judgment our curse, our sin. We should be experiencing this darkness but Jesus has taken this darkness so that we would live in the light of God. But why does there need to be darkness? Why does this need to happen? It's because it's a public judgment. Everyone in the land can see there's darkness. Why is this important? Ari Finlayson was a, a well-known theologian and preacher in the Free Church of Scotland in the 20th century. And he gives the illustration that when there is suffering, we're always given the due of private suffering. Even take an animal. Uh, If you have an animal uh, or wild animals... ...when they're injured, when they're suffering, when they're dying... ...they always go away from the herd to suffer and die alone. And as human beings, when we suffer... ...or when we're dying... ...we want to do it with the dignity of our own private state. And even the media, which can be so cruel to people at times... And they can harass people. Yet if there's a celebrity who's genuinely suffering and dying. They will leave them alone. For the dignity of suffering. Why can't Christ just suffer alone? It is because sin is a public defiance against God. And so God must Judge sin publicly. <clears throat> and so God is coming in full tangible view that He is publicly offended by sin and He is publicly judging sin. And this is why there will be a judgment day. This is why we will all. All, all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is why your private, personal, closet, secret sins will not be remain there. Jesus says when he returns, everything that's in darkness will come to light. Everything that's covered will be made known. All our sin will be shouted from the rooftops. It's not a private judgment to come. It's a public judgment to come. And we should fear that. There is accountability for your sin. Unless you come to Christ and receive his full forgiveness, you'll be publicly judged, publicly condemned, and you will go to hell for eternity. But here... The darkness symbolized public judgment against the sun. In Genesis chapter one, when darkness is over the face of the whole earth, God speaks and says, "Let there be light." But here, on Calvary, on that cross is the light of the world, God says let there be darkness. But can you hear? Open your ears. Can you hear what's going on during the three hours of darkness? You can't. It's complete silence. Between 9am and noon... It's noise and commotion. It's passers-bys, it's chief priests, it's Roman soldiers. It's all hustle and bustle and noise. After 3pm, it's the same. People are saying, come down. People are saying, he's calling Elijah. Oh, bring him a drink. But during the three hours of darkness, not a word. It's silent. It's as if heaven is saying, shh, be quiet, don't speak. Something unimaginably holy and fearful is going on. A single word, it's not the time. Because for three whole hours in the darkness, it's God and the Son alone in judgment. And what's happening? What's happening in this darkness? Are you again? There is a wonderful phrase in the liturgy of the Greek church which says, By thine unknown suffering... Lord, deliver us, unknown and unknowable. We cannot even begin to comprehend the magnitude of the judgment that's going on for three hours between God and Jesus. It is a mystery. Which no angel and no man will never get to the bottom of, and in a sense we dare not speak, we dare not speculate. Let's simply stop, be at awe, and give reverential adoration. However, God does reveal something, something of what happens. And that revelation comes through the cry. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, Why hast thou forsaken me? It is now 3 p.m. It is the climax of the darkness, and Jesus Christ cries these words. It is a citation from Psalm 22, verse 1. But do not misunderstand the citation. Jesus is not quoting Psalm 22 verse 1 because he just needs something similar to express himself like we would. Sometimes we don't have the words to express ourselves so we use a psalm or a quote from someone else who is more eloquent. That's not what's going on here. The very words of Psalm 22 are the very experiences of Christ on the cross. Remember 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 11 that the spirit of Christ was in the prophets testifying of the sufferings of Christ so the holy spirit who eternally proceeds from the father and from the son is sent forth To the prophets, including David, to reveal a thousand years beforehand the very experience of the Son on the cross. So Jesus is not quoting Psalm 22 because he needs similar language to express himself, but these are the exact revelation of the heart of Christ. It is as if Christ on that cross, if he could, could write a personal diary of how he's feeling. And that personal diary is Psalm 22. That's why it's foolish for anyone to say, we cannot sing Psalms because they're not Christian enough. Can anyone write a better song on the cross than Jesus. Can anyone express how he's feeling and suffering on the cross better than the Lord of glory himself? The best hymns are the hymns of Christ and the Psalter, but here it says, "Why, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me now don't don't misunderstand this. this is not Jesus perplexed or ignorant, like why is this happening? He knows what's happening. Uh, You read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. He's been telling us all along for the last three and a half years. He has come to be the ransom for many. He's already knows why. It's because he is the substitute for sin. The language of why in the Psalter is the language of complaint. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the heathen rage? Psalm 10 verse 1, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Psalm 88 verse 14, Lord, why castest off my soul? It's the language of complaint. Now, complaint can include sin and doubt and charging guilt with God. That's wrong. But that's not necessarily the case. The complaint of the Psalms is not grumbling and murmuring but is expressing the inner anguish of what one is suffering under God's sovereignty so this is not a sinful complaint it's a sinless complaint expressing the soul of Christ of what he's experiencing my God my God why art thou forsaken me God You are forsaking me, and I'm expressing the experience of forsakenness to you, O God. That's what it means. Which means he is experiencing forsakenness. The word forsakenness is clear it means to leave, to depart, to desert, to abandon. Far too many preachers and commentators say he only felt forsaken, but he wasn't really forsaken. That means you can never read Scripture in the light of Scripture. That means you can never take Scripture in its own literal context. Look at the words He cried out with a loud voice. Think he's on the cross. His lungs are collapsing. The moisture is being sucked out. Blood is everywhere. He's dehydrated. It's agony to utter a word. And yet with a not just a, a peep, but with a loud voice. My God, my God, why had thou forsaken me? And Psalm 22 confirms this. Psalm 22 Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? There's nothing fake about this. There's nothing Jesus Christ was not really forsaken. He was truly forsaken, abandoned, deserted. which reveals the most agonising experience of Christ on the cross was not physical. It wasn't the beatings, it wasn't the flagellation, it wasn't the spitting, it wasn't the nails, it wasn't the crown of thorns. There is no cry from Jesus for any physical suffering. But when it comes to being forsaken, then he cries. Isaiah 53, as we read earlier, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. As John Flavel famously said, the sufferings of the soul were the soul of his sufferings. And you should know this to a degree, brother and sister. Spiritual suffering is much more painful than physical suffering. Being beaten, battered and bruised is nothing compared (laughs) to being abandoned by a sibling or a family member. What's worse, physical torture or losing a loved one? Spiritual sufferings are greater than physical sufferings. But what exactly do we mean he was forsaken? To answer that, first of all, we have to begin, who? So many preachers pass over this. Who? A nature is not forsaken. A person forsakes a person. My God... Why are thou forsaking me? Who's the person? He is the Word made flesh. He is God manifested in the flesh. He is the Son of God incarnate. The He is God. God is forsaking God. Someone may distinguish that the Son is being forsaken according to the human nature, but the human nature isn't being forsaken. He is being forsaken. God's being forsaken of God. God the Father is forsaking God the Son. You deny that, you've denied biblical, orthodox, Chalcedonian Christology this is why it's a mystery this is why famously Martin Luther was meditating and studying Psalm 22 and he was in his office and for hours and hours the the maid would come in to see if he wanted anything and he would silent and didn't express a word and so after hours and hours a maid finally came in and he just uttered God forsaken of God Who can understand it? But it is God the Father forsaking God the Son. We miss this. We miss the depth. Secondly, what the forsakenness is not. What the forsakenness is not. There's so much error out there. It is not that there is a separation in the Trinity, there is no separation in the Trinity. God is one simple, undivided essence. It's not the Father's part of God and the Son is part of God and the Spirit is part of God, but the Father is the whole undivided essence. The Son is the whole undivided essence. The Spirit is the whole undivided essence. There is no separation in the Trinity. Neither does it mean there's a separation between the divine nature and the human nature and the person of Christ. That means there's no mediator. That means we don't have a mediator who's both God and man dying for us. And we would have no salvation. Neither does it mean that God was absolutely absent from Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse um, 19. God the Father was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. So God was present. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 referring, uh, there's a debate between it's the divine nature of the Holy Spirit, but for now we'll take it as the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ offered himself through the eternal spirit. The Holy Spirit was present upholding him. So God is not absolutely separate from the Son. And lastly, neither does it mean that God the Father stopped loving the Son. John ten seventeen is very clear. Therefore doth the Father love me, because I lay down my life for my sheep. And that love is the love of complacency. It means the love of delight when someone is obedient. Which means on earth, according to God's love of delight, God the Father loved the Son and delight the most when he was on that very cross, being forsaken for his sheep. So what does it mean? God forsaking the Son means that the Father punishes Jesus for our sins by leaving him to suffer under his infinite wrath without mercy or any sense or manifestation of comfort and love. That's what it means. God forsaking God means... No manifestation of comfort and love. No sense or feeling or experience of God's presence, love, and comfort. And that is astounding. The nature of the Father is the same nature as the Son, consubstantial of the same nature. This means Jesus' own Godhead gave him no comfort or no sense of love or presence. That's a mystery. His own divine nature gave no sense of love or comfort to the Son. And this was absolutely agonising for Jesus. In eternity, Proverbs 8, he's only ever been the object of the Father's delight. His whole earth experienced the same. The baptism, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The Mount Transfiguration, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. But on the cross, gone. Gone. He feels the abandonment of any sense of love or comfort or presence. This is not a sinner who sometimes has the presence and not has the presence. Sometimes has the felt love and sometimes does not have the felt love, like you and me. He has never experienced this before and he feels the pain of it. Secondly, it means no mercy. He's always been preserved. In John chapter seven, in John chapter eight, and in Luke chapter four, there are four examples when people try to kill him and stone him and arrest him, and they could not do it. Why? Mercy. God's mercy was with him. But it says the hour had not yet come. The hour has now come and there is no mercy why justice justice demands that the law is vindicated in the punishment of a sinner without mercy this is why Romans 8 32 is so profound God spared not his own son think about that God could have theoretically given 39 stripes but not 40 because it's his own son. But God is just and there must be 40 out of 40 stripes. There must be no mercy. Ezekiel eight eighteen. Therefore will I deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. Though they cry in mine ear with a loud voice, I will not hear them. And that's God the Father on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Silence. No answer. No mercy. Samuel Rutherford. Christ got justice and law and no mercy. Under desertion. Christ could not get a blink or word from the Father. Nay, I say more. God might not, he could not, as law went then. Christ cried, is there not a word, dear Father? Not a look? And he answers, no, not a look for the world. And the soul of Christ feels it. The anguish and the sorrow. This is why Gethsemane is so profound. My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. He wasn't under the wrath then, he was only looking at it. And if only looking at it, his soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. How much more. In the fire of desertion. And then thirdly of course. Infinite wrath. Jesus does not pray my father but my God. You read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Never ever ever does he address God as God. He uses the word God. But he never prays to God. God. As God is always my Father. Here it's God. Why is this? Because in the experience of Christ, the purity of God is before him. Psalm 22 verse 3 confirms this. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But thou art holy. Holiness without mercy. Holiness without grace. Holiness without any manifestation of love. Pure, unadulterated, bright, burning, consuming holiness. Do you want to know what Jesus experienced? Isaiah 53. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Psalm 5 verse 5. Lord, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Jesus experienced the holy hatred of God against iniquity. This is what your saviour is experiencing for you. In Genesis chapter 3 God casts out Adam from his presence and sets up a fiery sword to protect the way and the only way to return back to God's presence is to face the fiery sword and God reveals us in the sacrificial system. In the burnt offering, you would have the victim, the lamb, and the knife of God's justice would slit the throat of the lamb. And then the lamb would go on the altar and must be wholly, completely consumed. This was not one of the sacrifices where you could burn it so it's cooked and then eat it. It must be completely and utterly consumed. And preachers for 2,000 years and especially in the last 80 years have noticed the Greek word for the burnt offering, holocaust. Holocaust. I don't even have to illustrate to you what that word represents. On Calvary was Jesus' Holocaust. As God Almighty's sword awakens in justice against his fellow and pierces his soul with his anger against sin. And God, who is a consuming fire in infinite boundless wrath, enters the very human soul of Jesus, wrath against sin. And the prophet Nahum asked, who can stand this? Nahum chapter 1 verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire. Christ has a human soul, not a divine soul. A human soul is very limited and finite. We know that. Suffering, depression, depression, Afflictions. It can break the mind. It can tear someone apart. How can infinite wrath be poured into a finite soul and Jesus can still stand? It's because of his other nature, it's because of his divine nature. If Jesus did not have a divine nature, he would have been obliterated under the darkness as wax before a fire. But the divine nature keeps him alive to bear and endure infinite wrath. There's no comfort. There's no sense of love. He's simply keeping him above the waves so he doesn't drown but that every single wave can batter and bruise and come at him with infinite wrath. And the wages of sin is death. Children, the darkness over the land was the second last plague. Children, what was the last plague? The death of the firstborn son. And you will remember, children, how was it that God's people were not destroyed? They had the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. So when God came through the destroyer, he passed over Israel and killed the first sons of the animals and people of Egypt. But that destroyer did not go away. That destroyer kept on going for year after year, century after century, millennium after millennium, till AD 33. And then God's destroyer, the wrath of God, the wages of sin is death. Death. This is all what your Christ has experienced, forsaken of God. But thirdly, the faith. In this experience of unimaginable forsakenness, there's no sin. There's no doubts. There's only faith. My God, my God, though you're forsaking me, though you're deserting me, though there's no experience of your love, though your presence has gone from me, though I'm under your infinite wrath, you are still my God. Psalm 22. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and thou dost deliver them. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me to hope and trust when I was on my mother's breast. I trust in you. Isaiah 50 verse 10. He that walketh in darkness and hath no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. That was Christ. All darkness, no light. Oh, but I see light. I see light in his faith, trusting in his God. And we see that trust, do we not, in the last cry. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I trust in you. You will keep my soul. And I believe in your promises you will not let your Holy One see corruption. You will raise me from the dead and I'll be back in your presence. And for the joy that's set before me, I believe it and therefore I endure this forsakenness. And because he had this faith, we're saved. Because he trusted in God through the forsakenness, we are redeemed. Because this fulfills salvation and this fulfills righteousness and because Christ believed this means we who should be forsaken of God for all eternity are brought back into his presence outside of Christ God says to us depart from me ye cursed into everlasting fire but because Christ had faith and endured and we have faith in Christ, come ye blessed, inherit the kingdom that God has prepared for you. Christ has been forsaken, so that though, yes, God may chasten us in our sin and love, though he may withdraw his presence for a time so that we seek after him, he would never utterly forsake us. Which means, brother and sister in Jesus Christ, Christ has believed so that you would never be forsaken, but be eternally blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And why did he do it? Faith worketh by love. Faith worketh by love. There's an expression of the height of of the love in Paul. May may the saints apprehend the breadth, length, depth, And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Where's the height? Where's the depth? Where's the length? Where's that love that passes knowledge? The forsakenness. He loved his church. And he was forsaken for his church. Do you want to know how much Jesus loves you, brother and sister? He was willing to be abandoned, deserted, forsaken by his own father for you and me you think of your sins you think of your iniquities you think of your failings and Christ says I will endure the forsakenness of my father for you because I loved you and therefore I gave myself for you and this is what we have in the Lord's Supper Why are we not drinking the cup of indignation, Revelation 14? Because he drank it all completely for us. So what are we now going to be drinking? The cup of salvation. Filled with love. Let us pray. Lord our God, we indeed confess that these are unknown sufferings. Who can comprehend but thou hast given us such revelation that we can just taste an ocean of the boundless depths of forsakenness of our Saviour. Oh, fill us with faith so that we would know what He experienced on our behalf and help us bask in the warmth of His love so that we would come to the love feast and his name we